courage is doing the thing that is hard. Even yeah. when you don't feel like it, doing the right thing. Even when you don't feel like it's stretching yourself beyond what you thought you could do. Yeah. And so I practice that every day so that when I ask people to be brave, it's not something that I'm not also practicing. I think most, most people want to see a leader who's actually doing what they're asking their people to do. I think that's what great leaders do, Yes, is they don't just talk about a thing, they, they be about it. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Dig New Streams podcast. I'm your host, Dave Capozzi. This week, I welcome back my friend, Erin Jones. Erin is a peacemaker in every sense of the word. She is the author of Bridges to Heal Us, Stories and Strategies for Racial Healing, and has three TEDx talks available on YouTube. She's gained an incredible amount of wisdom as she's had to navigate this world as a biracial woman that grew up overseas, and she speaks four languages as a result. Her work as a lifelong educator continues to this day as she's now a consultant who talks about equity in schools and nonprofits. And as I found out in our conversation, she's working on a new book called More Than a Race. If you want to keep up with the podcast, please subscribe to whatever platform you're using to listen right now, and you can find a consistent conversation happening over on TikTok if you search for my name, Dave Capozzi, and on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Dig New Streams Podcast. Without further ado, my conversation with Aaron Jones. The truth. Oh, like, yes. We got to talk about that. Yes. Confronting yes. the truth. So like, yes. yeah. And we're looking yeah. at, we're looking at what's happening in Africa and we're yep. looking at what's happening all over. Maui. And, we're looking at what's, I mean, it's all over, right? Like it's literally yes. the TikTok I watched just before I jumped on here was the truth about what's happening in Maui. And I actually have a really good friend who, lives in lives right above the Haina and mm. um, the stories that we're being told with the, the broader news are not accurate. Okay. Can you fill us in a little bit? What, what is, what are we missing? Yeah. So I think number, number one, tourists need to not be there. Mm. So one of the things that I heard that was just soul crushing this morning is that there were tourists who were swimming in the water the next day. Like, I don't care how flippin' much money you invested in doing your summer vacation yeah. in Hawaii. Ugh. Like, how, how dehumanizing is it? People just lost their lives. And it's not just 100 people. What I just heard is, is it's, they suspect it'll be closer to 500, between 500 wow. and 1,000 people have lost their lives. And my, oh, my, my friend Lord. said, you know, when she saw images of the cars, literally people burned up in their cars. Like, oh, the fire came so quickly. Another thing that I, I just heard is they have these sirens that are supposed to go off when there's a bad hurricane or some sort of crisis and the sirens didn't go off. So people got a text warning five minutes before the fires hit. And and that's also tragic, right? Like, like where's these, these warning systems that were set up for times like this? Why didn't those go off? So... So there's, there's some like government cover up yes. and, um, that is, and, and it's back to what you said already about truth and what I believe about truth. We cannot heal. We cannot repair if we're not willing to be honest. And sometimes the truth is really ugly 
And sometimes the truth uncovers stuff that we have done that um, we've really missed the mark yeah. and we really messed up and we still have to acknowledge that we have to be willing to face that and say, you know what? We had these systems. We didn't use them properly. And now people have lost. We have to be willing to own that. Yes. And, and I think Maui is a great example right now of where people in authority are not. So right now they're not being honest yeah. about, and I, and that playing cover up, it will always be uncovered at some point. Mm. It will always be uncovered. And the challenge is who is harmed by the cover up the most the most marginalized people who don't have voices. Yes. Those people will always be more harmed than the government officials who are in charge. Yes. I mean, and that, that is, that's the greatest challenge. And for those folks who call themselves Jesus followers, um, I think what hurts my heart the most in this season of our country is for, especially white evangelicals to have the least amount of compassion. Yeah. I just don't see a willingness to embrace truth. There's, there's almost the opposite reaction is yes. we're going to not allow people to speak truth. And um, we're going to make educators not allowed to talk about a particular thing. I was another TikTok video that I watched. Um, mm. I am a total nerdy teacher and I watch nerdy teacher TikTok. <laughs> there was a history teacher in, um, in Texas who was talking yesterday. He started school yesterday and just learned that, Actually, no, no. So they're starting school today. But he learned yesterday that AP African-American history is not allowed in his district. So he just learned that yesterday that they have now, even though kids were signed up for it, teachers were were prepared to teach it. And I know my husband taught AP history. I went with him to the AP training just to see what that was all about. I don't believe in critiquing a thing if I haven't experienced it. So I went and sat in the training session with him when he got trained to do AP history. Yeah. That takes a lot of work. So now you have all these people, educators who've gone through the work to develop curriculum and the day before class starts in the middle of the night, like some teachers were notified like in the evening last night that by the way, tomorrow you are not allowed to teach was this a, US history. Was this a school board decision? I don't know. That was not clear, but yeah. it sounded like um because that's happening all like over Texas. This, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I was uninvited to to teach in Texas. So I used to teach for a school district that shall remain nameless. Um, I had done training there two years in a row. And then when the pandemic hit, I did a training um, online that first, that first, the summer um, 2020. And um, they asked me to get on a call half an hour before I started my first session. And I had 10 sessions. So I was supposed to do two back-to-back sessions every day for five days in a row mm. for their back to school. They have, they're such a large district that they rotate um, schools through each, each day. It's a different like set of schools that go through training. And I was doing two back-to-back days. So the day of training or the night before they were doing like a sound check. And um, they asked me to get, come into a closed room, zoom room, and wanted to inform me that I could not use the words race or white privilege in my training. So it's a day before I'm supposed to do a 10 training, trainings. A training about cultural about competency, equity. race, and equity. Yes. Yep. yep, yep. And they told me you cannot mention race and you cannot mention uh, white supremacy or white, white privilege, I think was the, the term they wouldn't allow me to use. Wow. So now I've already built the training. Um, 
And so I have to get really creative about how, and, and of course it's virtual. So it's different having a conversation with school directors virtually than if we were in person, there's a different way that I could have engaged them right? and, and disarmed them. Cause I'm really good at that in person, yeah. but on a screen, it's just, it was almost impossible. Yes. And then the next year I was uninvited. Wow. Even though, even though I had more people show up to my sessions and give really great feedback than I had had when I was in person, I had like hundreds more people that chose my class. Um, and I was uninvited the next year and I've wow. not been invited back since, but it's, it's back to, I don't even teach from a critical race theory perspective. Like yeah. I intentionally, that's not my lens. It's yeah. not the lens that I have chosen to talk about this stuff with. And yet even I am uninvited into some of, of these spaces. Of course. And that is, um, it's heartbreaking to me because if there's anyone who embodies like bridge building and yep. unifying people, that's how I want to show up in this work. And I, I want us to learn to be honest about this stuff. And so to mm. be uninvited mm. feels a certain kind of way. And the other thing that I've learned in the last four years, five years, is that I, I don't ever want to want people to learn more than they want to learn, especially when it comes to adults. Yeah. So there's a place as a, as a middle school and high school teacher where sometimes I had to believe more than my students did for them. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes I, I had to, I had to see their potential when they couldn't with adults. If I am fighting with you to just get you to believe that this is an important conversation, my energies are better used somewhere else where people at least want to engage in the conversation. You may not know how to have the conversation. I don't expect you to be, skilled in how to have the conversation but if you don't even want it i refuse now to invest my energy in trying to convince people that this is a conversation they should have yes absolutely and what you're bringing up is like this uh it's almost learning how to cope with the truth it's something that we're not taught and we praise the people who do the very opposite i mean we just have experienced the last like six seven years of trump who has built his entire legacy on lies and he is praised for it. You know, mm -hmm. I've recently been hearing about how people call Jesus too woke now. Yep, too weak. Right, too, too weak, too weak and, woke. and too woke. Mm -hmm. And I think this right here is part of our national problem. And it's yep. this, in the, starting with Billy Graham and this movement of, of sold out places that pray this prayer come forward and you have ma a sea of people that come forward without having had any kind of understanding of what Jesus, that first yeah. century Jewish rabbi was trying to call people who into <laughs> who he was, what he was yeah. about. Mm -hmm. And so you got this mass of people who have come into a religion when they have no knowledge of what that religion even is. And so but now that all about capitalism though. It, it is. It's 100% about capitalism. And so now those are the people that never knew who he was to begin with, mm -hmm. identify with his the religion named after him and are making these decisions and now yeah. calling him too woke. And so those people are being honest that they don't like him. Yeah. But it is that honesty that's both, uh, I don't know, refreshing and terrifying at the same yeah. time. Because yeah. those people are the ones that are not inviting you back who you could say, well, I'm, I'm a person of faith as well who... And that thing that you're trying to do, that bridge building, is impossible in a culture that has a, uh, a truthophobia, you know, yeah. <laughs> with themselves yeah. and with our nation.
It's impossible. Yeah. And you yeah, keep running yeah, yeah, up yeah. against that. I do. And I'm, I think the thing that gives me hope is as much as I'm running up against it, I'm also getting invited into some pretty big spaces. So, yeah. you know, I think I could be really discouraged by if I were to spend all my time focusing on who's not inviting me into spaces, I would not be doing the work anymore. But I am I don't allow myself to get caught up in that. Hmm. I am choosing to focus on what are the spaces I'm being invited into and how do I make the most of those spaces and not allow myself to rehearse the harm that's being done by other people. I have to just focus on what, whose minds can I not change? It's not my job to change their minds, but how do I invest in people that really want to learn yes. and grow and not allow myself to get discouraged and distracted by those who are fighting against even no. the conversation. No, because you can't force someone to reckon with themselves or with something nope. that they're not ready to do yet. You know, mm -hmm. I talked um, recently with uh, Quay Gordon, Dr. Uh, uh, Gordon, and he talked about how, you know, a therapist's job is not to like disrupt their defense mechanisms. So like, you can't do that unless someone is like, hey, teach me. I, I want to be open. So what you're saying is, not only um, the healthiest thing for you, it is just, it's gonna, you're gonna be spinning your wheels. And I think this is a really important conversation because we want to reckon with the truth, but all we really have the capacity to do is that with ourselves and other people who are willing to engage with those things. So what does that look like for you with people that are, I'm imagining, there are parts of, of what you say that are still jarring to someone who's just starting out and starting to open up their mind to these kinds of conversations. Um, have you found that people are asking for more or coming back or looking for your wisdom on some of these topics? Here's what just happened. So I was just um, selected to be the consultant for all of our state deputies. So for our state government, we have like a hundred deputies that are in charge of different departments and like DSHS and all that. And I am the consultant for all the deputies right now. So I get to do a three part series with, with every single deputy in the state, which is crazy. Wow. But what's really cool is I encourage them to let me do between each session coaching sessions. So people can choose to show up. And there's no agenda. And just anybody who shows up, I, I don't claim to be the expert, but I'll at least talk you through, like bring a problem of practice and let's just strategize as a community. We're just going to practice talking about hard things related to DEI and belonging. Yes. And so um, the first group of deputies, I worked with them in the spring. And we had two coaching sessions and only three or four people came to those. And I, I think, People just weren't sure with that first group. Like, we're not sure that we want to engage. Well, I just started with this new group of deputies last week, and we had a coaching session also last week. And we had 30 people that showed up on the call. Mm. And we went for an hour. I was only scheduled to be there for an hour. We probably could have done two hours with all the questions people had. But people were fired up. And so here's what I would say. There are 100 deputies. Only 30 showed up, but 30 people showed up yeah. and were absolutely engaged in this conversation. And so here's the thing that I would encourage your listeners to. And I, I've been trying to tell people as I go and do trainings, I think 
it is really easy to be distracted by the small, really loud voices. Yeah. And it feels like it's the majority, but I just don't, I refuse to believe that anymore. I think they're the, the loud voices that are getting attention, but I actually think there are so many more people in the general public that if we create spaces that are safe enough for them to be brave, they will engage. Yes. But I think that is, and that's why I think a lot of us who are teachers by trade, this is our, this is our moment. Like we have to use all the skill that we use in our classrooms because I'd say this in every speech, y'all are just big 12 year olds. So (laughs) I am a great middle school teacher and here's the deal. Y'all out here are just big 12 year olds. Yeah, for sure. Right. And so part of the reason I'm really good at this work is because I am really great with 12 year old kids who are navigating identity and are afraid of making mistakes and sometimes say dumb stuff and don't want to be shamed for it. Right. Like, we are just that. And so I think those of us that have had experience managing classrooms with lots of different identities and, and kids who have different reading levels, like that is the reality for any room that I walk into is that you have different levels of comfortability with talking about race and talking about gender. And, and so because I'm a teacher, like I can spot that person in the corner who really wants to engage, but is so afraid of saying the wrong thing that I can just walk over to that person and say, I see you. Yeah. I see you. And and I don't need you to say anything out loud right now, but I, I want to encourage you to practice today. Ooh. Right. And that that is where I think this my skill as a teacher is absolutely helping me do this work in a different way. Yeah. Your skill as a teacher, but also your sort of I don't know if you know if it's cultivated, if it's not but your empathy and desire for there to be a movement is like all of that together is huge in those spaces. And so like, obviously we know, we know this, right. That depending on the training that there are people that are in there, you've got the lowest common denominator. It's like, do I, do I go for that? Or do I go for the people that are more engaged? What do I do? You're always having to make those decisions, but then there's that seven out of 10 that aren't in the space and that are, refusing to engage with the truth. And I got to be honest, I know that from my own experience of not wanting to face my own truth in my life, that was so disruptive that it kept me bottled up and it caused me to have depression and all sorts of things. And I understand why it is that people are afraid to deal with the truth when they haven't, when they are white bodied individuals when there are people that the system has not fundamentally disrupted their lives because of their racial uh, or ethnic group. And I wonder, you know, what it looks like to have a conversation around this fear of the truth that isn't about coddling people or whatever negative association people might have with it, but is about moving people from that fear to a place of willingness to confront what is real. So I think we have to, and this is something I, every training that I do, every keynote that I do, I talk about this. We've got to embrace courage. Mm. Like this is a moment for courage. That's good. So I talk about creating brave spaces all the time. And I, you know, when I first came to the U.S. as an 18 year old kid for college in 1989, it was right at the beginning of the, the political correctness, like movement towards political correctness. And I, I actually don't think that was very brave or courageous. I think 
<laughs> it was a way to control people's speech. And, um, and the reality is for those of us who live in minoritized identities, anyone who speaks other languages, we learn to read body language really well. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, as someone who grew up in Europe and in the United Nations school, like I have always had to read body language because I couldn't speak every language in the school. I could speak four, but I couldn't speak all of them. So I had to learn, I had to pick up so many clues from people's body language. Yeah. And so watching Americans use like the right language, but not believe it, is something I can sniff people out right away. Mm. Like I can tell when you're being honest about something or when you're using the phrase that you think I want to hear. Right. And, and what I tell people in my training is I actually, that's not helpful to me. Yeah. You may feel like it's protecting you, but understand we can sniff you out. <laughs> so I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather you be honest. Now there's a difference between being honest and being rude mm. and being bigoted. So, so there's a, there's a middle somewhere and, and here's how I describe that middle ground. And again, this goes back to teaching as a teacher. My number one job is to help draw the best out of my students. That's, yeah. that's my number one job is to help them find the best version of themselves. Yeah. And, and so I want to create a space in my classroom that's not safe because I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's possible. First of all, I think when we keep things safe, we only like we will come up just under like we'll do just what is necessary to just meet standards. Yes. I actually don't want that. And as an athlete, like as a, as a, a pretty great athlete <laughs> who has pretty high standards, I don't, I don't believe in playing it safe, but I also don't believe it's possible to create a space that is safe for everyone all the time. So right. in any given classroom that I'm in, it may be that you're neurodivergent, you're on the autism spectrum. You maybe because of your religion, because of your gender, because you're not sure what your gender is, whatever. Yep. There are myriad reasons that at any point in time, you may not feel safe. Yes. And I think my job is to create a classroom space where students are safe enough to be brave. Mm. And I think bravery is what I am really, I'm really asking for that right now in every space that I go into. And it's really part of the reason that I run. So I ran, I've already run seven miles today. <laughs> I'm 52. Like it's, it doesn't make sense. Uh, but I, I do that because it's my way to practice being courageous. Yeah. Like courage is doing the thing that is hard. Even yeah. when you don't feel like it doing the right thing, even when you don't feel like it's stretching yourself beyond what you thought you could do. Yeah. And so I practice that every day so that when I ask people to be brave, it's not something that I'm not also practicing. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people in, in leadership roles, and I don't have a formal leadership title, but people see me as a leader in my community. People watch what we do, not what we say. Yes. Well, so unfortunately, there are some people that are leading who folks just care what they say and don't care what they do. But I think, <laughs> I think most, most people want to see a leader who's actually doing what they're asking their people to do. Yep. So if they say they care about a thing, they're demonstrating it with their own life. I think that's what great leaders do. Yes. Is they don't just talk about a thing, they they be about it. They're actually modeling it. Yep. And and so I try to the best of my ability to model that brave. Mm. Whether it's with running, whether it's with sharing really hard things in my own life. It's part of the reason I shared the day that my uncle died. Yeah. 
I shared literally within five minutes of hearing, I shared on TikTok. And, and mm. some people may say, well, why would you do that? Because I can't ask you to be vulnerable if I'm not willing to be vulnerable. And so yeah. I shared my most vulnerable self with people. So you know, I'm not asking you to do what I have not already done myself. And I think we, ha- we need more leaders who are willing to lead that way. Mm. I'm not saying I have all the answers or I'm doing it right all the time because I'm not. But I think we have to have a higher standard and, and better expectations for ourselves as leaders. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that you're tapping on so many things there that are crucial to this conversation. I love what you said about spaces that people feel safe enough to be brave. And I think what that requires is a different approach to the conversation in general. Um, people are doing the thing that they're afraid of to each other. So you said, you know, there's a difference between being rude and being honest. There's a major difference. I don't think rudeness is honest. I think it's projection. I think it's, it is just your discomfort coming out as, oh, I'm just speaking the truth. No, you're just projecting your stuff onto everyone else, right? And so if we could, and this is the approach I try to take as much as I possibly can in social media spaces, but like, I hear you, I get what you're trying to say and what's where this is coming from. Can we acknowledge that part first so that we can move on to the next part? And do you find that when you're doing these keynotes or workshops that people are from your presence or from your invitations are being brave when um, they might not typically expect themselves to go that way? Absolutely. I think, and here's another thing, back to being a teacher and and having been an athletic coach. I think I set a standard and people rise to it. Yeah. People rise to it. Not not 100% of the people, right? You're always going to have that whatever 10% who just isn't there for the right reasons or is going through something in that particular moment. But um, I find that because I set that expectation and I model it, for the most part, people meet me. Yeah. They meet me there. And I will hear from people afterwards, wow, this is the first time that anyone has really challenged me. And, and I, I will offer to that part of being brave, and I walk through this with people, part of being brave is also we don't play the shame, blame, guilt game. No. And so I don't use that as a tool. I don't, I am not going to show up in a space and challenge you to be vulnerable and then shame you when you make a mistake. So right. I, I, I promise to do that up front. Yeah. And if I do, I will apologize. So just know that my intention is that's not how I don't roll like this. I'm not coming to beat you up. I'm coming to invite you into a conversation. And so I think by modeling that, and then I also challenge people and I want folks to hear this right now, because I think this is something we also don't do well. Also don't shame, blame, guilt yourself. Yes. Now you may feel guilt as you hear, you learn a piece of history that you didn't know. Um, You hear about something that maybe you did that caused someone harm. You may feel that, so own it. Say, oh my yeah. gosh, I, I kind of feel crappy that I, and pivot, pivot back to apologize, mm-hmm. apologize, learn different, be different, yeah. but don't stay in the, oh my gosh, I suck. Or are you saying that, oh, white people suck? I've never said that. And that's not helpful. It's not, that's not going to move us forward to stay. It's not helpful for me to say it because it doesn't change people in, in the kinds right. of ways that I want people to change. But it also becomes about you. 
it's very selfish when you are self-flagellating and saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that and I suck. And five days later, you're still self-flagellating over that thing that you said. It now becomes about you and not yes. about the people that you're supposed to serve better. Yes. And so we have to stop the shame, blame and guilt of others. But we also have to stop the shame, blame and guilt of ourselves. Yes, exactly. Yeah, which is why I'm saying it's, this is about projection. It's like I need to swing at someone because I can't hit myself. Right. And I think that's such important wisdom. I think that this wisdom will not only move people more quickly through the work that needs to be done, the people that are open and willing and looking for it, it will also be more invitational to those that are on the sidelines thinking that people are just SJW leftist, Marxist, blah, blah, blahs. There's only so much you can um, deride a person who's inviting you in compassionately. You know, and that's what Martin Absolutely. Luther, that's what Martin Luther King was doing. You know, there, there's always these conversations. You need Mal Malcolm and Martin. Uh, you, you need all of that. And you have this, this like more invitational, compassionate approach that I think is important for those of us that are white bodied individuals that are reluctant to admit that this has been the case, that we've inherited this thing. That invitation is, um, while many people uh, don't have the capacity for that, understandably, it's triggering, it's re-traumatizing, um, you're out there doing that work on a daily basis. And I, I want to affirm something else you said. You know, we all know this to be true, that when that growth only happens through difficulty and struggle and pain. It doesn't happen when you're coasting and doing well, Right. As an athlete, as a teacher, you know this to be true. Yep. I mean, it's, I, I just, we lifted weights this morning at Orange Theory. So I went for a five mile run and then we lifted weights. And the reality of, of getting stronger is you break down the muscle that's there. Like your muscle has to break down. And, and I want to offer it to the black and brown folks watching or listening. Your muscle has to break down, but then you also have to rest. So if I were to go and try to lift weights again tomorrow, really hard it would not allow my muscles to rebuild. So part of this for me is also rest. So I take a lot of naps too. So I may run seven miles today, but also when we're done here, I'm going to go home and take a nap, right? So Amen. I think it's really important, like thinking about when do I run and when do I rest? And that's actually my next book that I'm writing right now. Okay, um, It's called More Than a Race. It's called More Than a Race, but it's about all the lessons I'm learning from running both running physically, but also running for office. And it's that, like, when when do I need a sprint? When do I need to do an easy job? When do I need to just pause and just rest and put it down? When is this a relay? I got to pass the baton to you. Mm. When am I running a marathon? But really navigating all that in this context of race. and Yeah, Aaron, what does that look like for you to discern those moments? Um, is that, do you find that that's become something where you've become more in touch with yourself? Has that come through community? Has that come through meditation? What practices have enabled you to come to a place of knowing now's the time I need to rest and now I need to sprint or now is a marathon time. What does that look like for you? I think it's all the things you described. So, um, meditation, prayer, um, walking, just walking without any headphones in or anything, just being in nature. I live about a mile from a really beautiful trail that 
goes 100 miles. So I'll go walk on the trail and just be still. I am actually, as much as I can be extroverted, I get my energy from being by myself. Yeah. Which, which always freaks people out because I'm really good in crowds. And I, but I, I don't get energy. Like when I'm done doing a keynote and I've signed a bunch of books and done all the shaking hands, I'm done. Like yeah. I need to just go. Like I can't do people again. Like I'm peopled out. I tell my staff, I'm like, yo, I'm peopled out at this point. I'm peopled out. I can't do more people today. Yeah. Um, but I think the older I get, the older I get, the more I am aware of what my body needs. The other thing, the more I let myself pay attention to my body. Mm. Because I think I was also taught, both as a woman, as a mom, to not listen to my, to just give, 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 give. I was taught that listening to myself is selfish. And nobody ever said that to me explicitly, but I got those messages from so many places that effective people are always on. They're always running. You're always sprinting. Like as a basketball player, you can appreciate this because you're a ball player too. You know, being a great ball player, I was always running. Like I was playing five days a week until I was 45 years old. Just go, 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 go. And yeah, I'm going, but I also rest hard. Yeah, And my husband will tell you that I am hair on fire or asleep. Like I, I just, I, I will go really heavy, but the older I get, the more I realize, you know what? Sometimes I need to just jog slow. Like this right now is not a race. It's mm. not a speed race. And, and so part of the book is going to be some races are not run to be won. They're run to just be in. Like sometimes we're just meant yeah. to be in a Ooh, race. I love that. We're not meant to win a race. And so, you know, I think the older I get, the more I try to be really intentional about, okay, which race am I running right now? And what is my role in that race? Am I supposed to be the pace setter? Am I supposed to be out front? Am I supposed to be in back, like pushing people ahead, like inspiring people to move forward? Oh. And I think the older I get, the better I am able to, to negotiate that for myself and yeah. to watch the room and figure out what's my role right now. Yes. Those rhythms that you've established in your life have opened the pathways for lessons that enable that kind of wisdom and discernment of your own capacity at the moment, right? And you mentioned something about sort of uh, as a mother, something that wasn't explicitly stated, but you internalized. And I have to think there are a lot of messages that if people were to process or just stop for a moment and they were asked that question, what is something that you've internalized that maybe you didn't hear explicitly, but that is in the water in this society? What's something that you can point to? And I, I think especially when we're functioning within a hyper-individualistic society, um, inviting people into that space that opens them up to the capacity or possibility of connecting with someone else that has a similar experience just could not be more profound work. So do you have for your work, you do all the things I know you do all the things. Um, do you have a preference? Do you prefer like keynotes or workshops or classrooms? Like what is, what do you like enjoy the most? I don't, I think I enjoy inspiring people. Yeah. And some days like, I'll just give you a rundown of what I did last week i'll just give you like seven days of what i did <laughs> so on on actually i'll add two days so my son got married on july 29th which is my 30th wedding anniversary so yes yes it was just really amazing 
so the following week, I was in LA to speak at the largest teachers um, teachers union conference in the country, UTLA. It's the yeah. Los Angeles um, Teachers Union. So I was scheduled to speak there on Sunday and to do their closing keynote keynote speech. Tim Wise, by the way, was last year's closing keynote speaker. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I ended up on stage. Anyway, well, I do, but that's kinda, that's cool. <laughs> anyway, but I. My, my youngest son lives in Irvine, which is about an hour from LA. So I decided, man, I should go spend a day with him. So I flew out on Friday and then Saturday I spent a day with my youngest son. And then Sunday I spoke at the largest teachers union conference, hmm. which was really amazing. And just to be around teachers that were fired up about houselessness and housing inequity was the topic. Hmm. And it was really exciting to talk about like my experience in Philadelphia and living in the suburbs, going to college in the suburbs and then playing basketball in the city and seeing the disparity in education systems based on property. And so I got to talk about that and that's really why I became a teacher. I wasn't going to become a teacher, but I saw the disparity in resources because of basketball and seeing people's housing situations and learning about how schools were funded in America. So that was Sunday. I flew home Sunday night, Monday, I was speaking to all the school district leaders for a really large, very wealthy district north of Seattle. That was awesome. Mm. I loved it. Totally different audience. So at the teachers union conference, they were bad talking to all the administrators. Now I get to stand up in front of a bunch of administrators and talk about how y'all need to respect your classroom teachers, because here's the dynamic that's being created, this us against them. That is not helpful to any of us. But I get to share what I learned over the weekend with this group of administrators now the next day. The day after that, I was home for a day and then I flew to Sacramento where I got to speak in a little tiny town called Upper Lake in California. It's two hours northwest of Sacramento. Literally, I had no Wi-Fi service most of my drive there. Like, mm. that's how rural, remote this place is. Wow. And I got to speak to every student in the school and every staff person in this whole school, which was my favorite. That's I don't know what my favorite was. <laughs> like, I, I think what I love about what I get to do right now is I'm literally in every space that touches young people. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'm working with governments. So that's funny. On the way home, I had to stop at a Starbucks on my way back from this tiny little town in Sacramento to get online with these deputies for the state government. Mm. So I literally in just seven days time touched every single spot that works with young people. And and so what's my favorite? I I really don't have a favorite. (laughs) I love that every day is something different and that I get to touch so many different places that are affecting how young people get to show up in the world. Yes. That's amazing. And that's what we need. You know, a lot of us adults are, um, we've spent the energy that we're going to spend. And it's these places in our lives where we're a little more settled. We're like, not everyone's looking to push the envelope. Like we need to be affecting the minds of these young people who are going to be making decisions for our, our society very shortly and who are very dissatisfied with the way things are. Oh, absolutely. Talking to the young people, that is absolutely true. And here's the other thing that I'll tell you, and if if there are leaders out there listening, whatever your role is, 
I think here's another mistake that we are making is we're so siloed that one group is not listening to another group is not listening to another group is not listening to another group is not talking to another group. And, and so yes. I see myself every day, almost all the time as an educator. Mm. And sometimes I get paid for it. Other times I just get to be it. And that I think that's the greatest gift of my life right now. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this conversation inspired some new thoughts or questions within you. Until next time, peace, my friends.